Wasn't that marvelous? Just beautiful. Wonderful, wonderful family, too. I want to speak this morning on what Jesus learned from his mother. Because some have talked about Mary to excess, some of us have ignored this incredibly remarkable woman. Because the doctrine about Mary has been emphasized strongly by some, the overreaction has been to ignore or minimize this phenomenon human being. One of the problems that we have is the problem of getting Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus off of the Christmas cards. One of the problems we have is the, what I would call the problem of halos and white robes. halos and white robes, as though they were plastic people forever in a stained glass window setting. Life ideal and perfect and simple, and it was far from that. And in the last couple of weeks, I have been turning over in my own mind and my own imagination and uh, some over-dinner conversation with Martha, some thoughts about Mary and her relationship to Jesus, her influence upon him, that I want to share with you this morning. Some seeds have been planted in my own mind and in my own heart as I have struggled with this problem that I've just mentioned, that of halos and white robes, of seeing them as they really were, living in a human situation like you and I live in, with the stresses that you and I have, a family like yours, having to make it in a world like ours. They had the same problems. Not plastic people were these, not impervious to the surroundings. They were human beings. And something took place at a very human level that God has elevated to the point of communicating divine truth. And I pray that the Spirit of God will use these moments this morning to plant in your heart and in your mind some seed for spiritual growth that will help you. Thinking about it and now sharing it with you has helped me. Can you imagine what a remarkable woman Mary was? That the God of the ages the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth, who inspired the prophets, that that eternal God would say to this humble virgin in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, 
you are to conceive and bring forth a child. Can you imagine what kind of character she must have had? Can you imagine the strength in her soul and her spirit? You know the story. She was engaged not yet married, not having yet known a man, as she said when the messenger of God came to her and said, you are going to have a baby and the one in you will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, will be conceived by God himself. And she said, but I have not known a man. How can this be? God will do it. God will do it. But I am not married. God will do it. But my reputation, God will be with you. The story, the journey to Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, back to Nazareth. Joseph married her. Can you imagine what kind of man Joseph was? Think about him for a moment. Think about what kind of woman Mary must have been that Joseph would say, in spite of the shadow that has been cast over you, in spite of the discussions that have gone on in whispered conversations in Nazareth about your pregnancy, Though the law would have prescribed your being stoned to death, being with child out of wedlock, I love you and believe you and believe that the one in you is born of God. You think about that man. One of the unsung heroes of the Bible. Joseph. And Mary. Back to Nazareth after the sojourn in Egypt to work in a carpenter's shop. Mary and Joseph married. They had other children. They had other children. That was God's plan from the beginning when he created man and woman and told them to be fruitful and multiply and to replenish the earth. They had some hard times. Everyone in those days had hard times. That's very relative. The time came for Jesus and his mother and father and younger brothers and sisters to go to Jerusalem for the observance at the temple at Jesus' twelfth year. All of these facts are recorded in that magnificent second chapter of the gospel according to Luke. You know, when they got down there to uh, Jerusalem, they stayed those days, and then when they started back, uh, Jesus was not with them. They thought he was. They traveled in great caravans. Clans of people would come together from Nazareth, from Tiberias, from Capernaum, from elsewhere to come to Jerusalem for the feast time. So it was not uh, parental neglect on their part. They simply thought that Jesus would be along with some of their kinspeople on the way back. Now, I, I want you to see how human this story is. I want you to see the natural human tensions that existed in that home, the natural problems that existed there. Because you see it throughout the New Testament, there were times when Jesus and his mother had some polite attention between them because that was a home. Life is like that. Home is like that. The Holy Family was like that. Now notice in the second chapter, they go back, the latter part of the second chapter, looking for Jesus. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said, here they'd not seen him. They'd missed him and gone back. His mother said, son, why have you done this to us? Has that ever happened to you at your home? 
Have you been expecting your child home at 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock comes and they're not there and 1 o'clock comes and, and they're not there and you think, what's happened to them? Uh, where are they? Uh, you're going to call the hospitals or the police. If you knew where to go, you would go look for them. And then you hear them come in and the doorbell ring and you have that strange mixture of anger and gratitude inside of you, don't you? You don't know which one to express, so you just kind of stand there and quiver. You're so glad that they're home and safe and alive, but at the same time, you have been so upset with them because they didn't call or didn't show up on time. These were people. These were not plastic people. These were flesh and blood people. They'd not seen their 12-year-old for a couple of three days, and they didn't know what had happened to him. And so they said, she said, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have been looking for you, sorrowing. I understand that feeling, do you? I know my mother and father understood that feeling because of my younger brother primarily. <laughs> but, And he said to them, notice how, notice how human this is. He said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? I mean, where, why are you upset? Don't you trust me? Don't you believe me? Why are you worried? And then he said something very subtle. And he said to his mother, don't you remember, I must be about my father's business? Remember, mother? My father? And they understood the saying, they understood not the saying which he spoke unto them. Mary understood it. And he came down with them to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother, listen, kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Notice that. I also want you to notice another verse of Scripture, the 40th verse of the second chapter, which reads... And the child grew. Now think about that. Here is God incarnate in human flesh. And the child grew. How did he grow? He grew in, in his spirit. He grew strong in his spirit. He was filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom, 52nd verse, and physically and in stature, and in favor with God and man. He grew in relationship to God. He grew in relationship to human beings. He grew like you grew. He grew like we grow. And Mary was thinking about all of these things in her heart. The 19th verse reads, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Pondered. I like that word, pondered. It's a long word, and I don't mean in number of letters. It's long, takes time, pondered. 
And these last couple of weeks I've been turning over in my mind rather restlessly at times what she pondered. What was going on here? More than my mind can comprehend, more than my heart can feel, more than my eyes can see. But ponder with me for a few moments about this relationship between a human mother and a divine son. A human mother and a sinless son. What did Mary ponder? What did she think about? I believe she thought about the sovereignty of God. I believe she thought, oh my God. My soul must magnify the Lord. Oh, God, this is so magnificent. This is so indescribable. Why I, in this obscure little village, why I? To be the womb that carries your son. Oh, God, how can I accept this responsibility? How can I do this? How can I be sufficient for these things? You must be with me. I cannot do it alone. You must sustain me. I cannot sustain myself. Oh, God, how can I be a, a mother? Oh, God, how can I be a parent? And oh, God, only you and I know this secret. No one will believe me. No one will believe me. I must live out my days under the cloud of unfaithfulness. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, don't you know she took courage in the realization of the sovereignty of God. And my friend, at times, that's the only refuge we have. When the world stands and looks and makes cursory judgments, when the world stands and looks and makes summary judgments, when a world that looks on the outward appearance and plays God and tries to judge our motives, we come to the place where Mary was and say, Oh God, you know and I know, and that's enough to face life together. And I may be vindicated in a year or two years or a hundred years, or it may take heaven itself to justify my motives and my relationship with you. But God, I can face a skeptical world on the reassuring fact of your presence within me and that that baby in me is of you. The sovereignty of God was a source of strength and comfort to her heart in those moments when crowds whispered as she walked down the streets of Nazareth on an afternoon. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Oh, yes, they were accepted with respectability, a good carpenter and his family. But then they'd say, you know about the oldest son, don't you? Yes. Everybody knows. No. Everybody never knows. God knew. And it was in the strength of that relationship with God that she could walk with head high and shoulders back and smile true. 
she pondered the sovereignty of God that would be her sustaining strength in hours of dis- dis- depression and discouragement. I believe she pondered the purposes of God. Oh, God, he to be the Savior of the world. That boggles my mind. I cannot comprehend it. It is beyond the appreciation of my heart. The purposes of God, look at it. The one moving in her womb, the Redeemer of the world. You women, you mothers, can appreciate that so much better than we men. You're closer to life than we are. I think you respect life more than men do. Because you cradle it, you carry it, you feel it. Can you imagine? You can imagine better than I what Mary felt carrying within her the hope of the ages. Think of it. Think of the feeling that she had of her responsibility. I believe she pondered her responsibility because most historians believe, most biblical scholars believe that Jesus' father, earthly father, Joseph, died soon after his 12th year, so Jesus becomes the head of the family. Younger brothers and sisters, Jesus becomes the support for the family. Think of the responsibility that Mary had and the responsibility that she felt. Responsibility for the Son of God. Now, I hesitated this morning at 8.30 to say this, but I, and I'm hesitating again now, although I went ahead and said it at 8.30. I want you I want you to understand that I'm, I'm throwing out a thought that is beyond my comprehension. Uh, everyone may not agree with this. I'm not sure I agree with it, and yet I, I have the feeling about this I, that I, I want to share with you, and I'd like you to turn it over in your mind. Let God turn it over in your mind with you. Mary could have ruined him. He was not insensitive to human influence, for the scripture has already told us he grew that way, and she was the only one in his life after the twelfth year, and the primary one in his life those formative years that bent that twig. I believe that she pondered the incredible responsibility of being a mother to the Son of God and helping with the leadership of the Spirit of God to shape that life. Think of that. I think our society needs to think of that. The sense of responsibility that goes with being a parent the sense of responsibility that goes with being a mother. 
I fear for a culture that looks upon raising children as a secondary occupation. God have mercy on a nation that believes that pounding a typewriter is more important than shaping a life. I know at times it is unavoidable. Single parents raising children, single mothers having to work, sometimes families having to work to provide. I am talking about primary motives. I am talking about priorities. And make no mistake about it, even if you have to work and do work and it takes long hours of work, your child will know with that infallible radar that they all come equipped with whether or not he or she is number one on your priority list. Make no mistake about it. The child will know. And the child will understand the necessity. As long as in your own heart and in your own mind and in your own priorities, that child is supreme above any dollar, above any job, above any career. No greater career, no nobler calling than to shape a life. She felt that. I believe she pondered that. Well, what did Jesus learn from her? He grew, and I think he grew in relationship to her. They grew together. She was very young, you know, 15 or 16 when he was born. They grew together. His growth was related to her ideas and ideals. Isn't that true? Don't we all pick up ideas? Religion is not taught in the home. It's taught in the home. He caught something there. In the atmosphere of love, and devotion, and priorities. He grew in relation to his environment. We all do. We are what we are because many lives have touched ours and shaped ours. He grew in relation to her ideas and her ideals, and he saw himself in her eyes. He saw himself in her eyes. In the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy and the 17th Psalm, there's a little phrase used that all of us know about. It's called the apple of his eye. Moses uses it, David uses it, that we are the apple of God's eye. Now, that is really an untranslatable phrase. In Hebrew, if you translated literally what it says in Hebrew, it wouldn't make any sense in English. And in English, the apple of his eye doesn't make any sense in Hebrew. It's one of those difficult passages of Scripture to accurately translate. What it says, in one instance in the masculine, another instance in the feminine, what it literally says is, I am... The apple of his eye. No, I am the little man or the little maiden of his eye. 
Now, that's what it says literally. That's why you see it wouldn't make any sense if you translated it into English unless you could add a word of explanation, which I want to quickly do. Jesus saw himself in his mother's eyes. When two people, husband and wife, get up very close to each other, when a mother and a little child get very close to each other, and you look very intently in someone else's eyes, do you know what you'll see? You'll see yourself. You'll see a miniature picture of yourself. You are, I am the little man, the little maiden in God's eyes. God is saying, I am so close to you that if you will just look into my eyes of love, you'll know who you are. You'll know who you are. You'll know that I love you and that I am close to you and that I am with you. You will have a sense of identity about your personhood when you see yourself as a reflection in the eyes of the love of God. Jesus saw himself in his mother's eyes. We all do. We all do. I believe that Mary did three things, oh, many things, three things I'm going to mention, three things for Jesus. First of all, she put a kind face on God. She put a kind face on God. God was looked upon by many as austere, judgmental, angry, hostile, Not when you see yourself in his eyes. And Mary put a kind face on God. I don't know anything that Christians need to do more today than to emulate that. Put a kind face on God. So many people think God is angry with them, upset with them, out to get them, that he has something against them. He's up close and personal. He loves, he cares. And Jesus learned from his mother that God had a kind face. That's where a lot of us learned that first, wasn't it? And then we got out in what we call the real world. It's not the real world. That's the dominating world, but not the real world. Mary put a kind face on God. Did something else. She put a confident face on Jesus. He knew who he was. I believe she told him early. His earliest recollections were her mother's, his mother's descriptions of the announcement and of his birth and of the wise men and the shepherds. As I said to those many young couples, the over 40 last Sunday, dedicating their babies, your child will not remember this. Tell them early, tell them often of what you have done. I believe Mary told him early and told him often, and he knew who he was. And because of that, he had that amazing balance in his life. You see it there in the temple, that amazing balance between freedom and responsibility. That amazing capacity to experiment without being disrespectful. Balance. He knew who he was in the sense that he was able to distinguish between 
social pressures and moral principles. He was able to balance those in his mind. And one reason for the marvelous popularity of his preaching was his ability to cut through some of the social mores and get to the moral principles which had been overlaid with all of these cultures and customs. He had that balance. Why was it? His mother gave him that. A sense of balance. A sense of who you are. A sense of confidence about yourself. He knew what they were saying about his mother in the streets of Nazareth. He knew that and he'd heard it all of his life and he'd watch her walk down that street like a queen. He knew who she was and she knew who she was and he had the courage to be himself. He learned that from his mother. He learned that from her. He put a correct face on Jesus. You know, we need something in our culture. We need to be reminded of the marvelous humanity of the Lord who love for us. You know, I, I'm reading a book. I'd like, for, I'd like for everybody in America to read. This ought to be required reading for the world. It's Dr. Paul Cornier's book on the gift of feeling. Let me read you just something quickly here. Our own society is anonymous and functional. Each of its members is defined not as a person but by his role, by the function he performs. All that is demanded of him is that he fulfills his function. His intimate feelings do not count. The principle is openly stated. Business is business, which means that feelings do not come into it, nor do scruples of conscience. One's relationship with others are only functional, and it works. It is possible for people to work effectively together, and I might add parenthetically, live together as husband and wife, it is possible for people to work effectively together for years without ever really getting to know each other. That is why I say that women have a mission. After three centuries of being thrust aside, they are now mostly endeavoring to imitate men, to demonstrate that they are capable of doing any job men can do. That equality is still a long way off, but that they are capable of it has been demonstrated. So perhaps the next stage is that they will determine to make a more personal contribution to our civilization by doing what they can do better than men, using their special talents for attention to persons and not only to things. In order for this to happen, they must first realize that this is their mission. Amen. We need that personal touch. We've got enough technology. We've got enough mechanistic society. We need personal touch. And women have that. And that was imparted to Jesus through his mother. I saw it just the other day. We went to the basketball game with Maury and Lorena Holden last week when they beat the Sonics like they're going to destroy L.A. this afternoon. They're going to think the earthquake hit Los Angeles today. We went to the basketball game with them, and we were sitting there, and Maury and I were talking about rebounds and who was screening who and who made a hook shot and all that sort of thing. Technical, objective descriptions of the game with these people out there playing it. And I overheard Martha and Lorena talking. Do you know what they were talking about? Mark Overdeen's hairdo. 
right? Here we were coming down the court. We were about three points behind, and they were talking about the fact they liked his new barber. <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more I thought, isn't that great? How our culture needs that. That's such a tenderness. That's such a personhood. Jesus got that from his mother. And he got an accurate picture of the world. He put a human face on God, an acceptable face on Jesus, and an accurate face on the world. Things are not what they seem, my friend. They're not what they seem. He knew his mother was innocent of sexual infidelity. Nobody else in town thought so. And I believe that's one reason his brothers and sisters never believed him until after his resurrection. They thought so too. I think that's one reason he was so understanding of prostitutes, of people accused of being prostitutes. He saw behind the facade. He saw behind the reputation. He, he saw behind what people were saying to the reality of potential in a person's life. That's why tax collectors liked him. That's why lepers liked him. That's why blind folks liked him. People who thought they were under the curse of God because they were blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus was once asked. He said, neither one. Things are not what they seem. We think that when we have an objective description of someone, when we've looked at biographical data, when we've brought up on the computer screen the outline of their accomplishments, that we know them, we haven't begun to know them. That's why everybody in the world ought to love Jesus Christ. He sees us not for what we have done or not done, he doesn't see us in terms of our function. He sees us in terms of our potential. What we can be. What we can be. Touches chords deep in our hearts that have long been silent. He puts an accurate picture on life. What mother, Jesus' mother did for him, he's done for us. He put a kind face on God. He put a confident face on us. He put an accurate face on the world. And he said, now, you're my people. I want you to be the same. So you see, Jesus did not come to just inform us. He came to reform us. He doesn't come just to teach us something. He came to make us something. He wants to make us into his likeness. His mother influenced him. He has influenced the world supremely and ultimately and finally and consummately. And then through us, he wants to go on influencing the world. He wants us to be to others what he is perfectly and completely. He wants us to be to each other. Let's go home today. Go to work tomorrow. Put a kind face on God. 
put a confident face on people that you work around. You can do it. I believe in you. I believe in you. And it also face on the world. Don't judge anybody by what you read in the papers or hear on the evening news. There's more to them than that. More to them than that. God help us to be like Mary. A sinner like us who needed the redemption of her own son like us. But what she was to him, we can be with his spirit's help to each other. May it be so. May we stand together and bow our heads. Dear Lord, we pray that in this moment, men and women, young people, would trust you as Lord and Savior, follow you as the master of life. And, oh, Father, help all of us in these moments of invitation, even if we do not make public a decision, as some will do, to join this church and to become a part of this fellowship. Oh, God, give us for a moment the desire to ponder some things. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So quietly, prayerfully, we sing just as I am, all of the verses of it, please. You come trusting the Lord, moving your membership. Whatever Christ confesses you to do, you come as we sing.